This is Just Life, live from Cambridge here at Radio Maria, and I'm joined in person by Dr. Kim Phillips. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. And uh, he is a biblical scholar based at Cambridge University Library. And a while back, before the summer break, Dr. Benjamin Outhwaite came to tell us about the Cairo Geniza and Dr. Kim is here this morning to take us a little bit deeper into uh, the biblical texts um, and their history related to the Cairo Geniza. Perhaps you'd be best placed rather than me, Dr. Kim, to explain to anyone who hasn't didn't tune into that program exactly what the Cairo Geniza is. Sure. Yeah, fine. Um, well, in Jewish tradition... Um, for, uh, for, for for thousands of years now, uh, if a text uh, has the name of God written on it, um, uh, or even if it uh, is suspected that it might have the name of God written on it, um, then you mustn't just throw it away um, because that would uh, that would be to desecrate the name. Uh, instead, it needs to be given a formal burial um, of of, uh, of a particular kind. But rather than uh, do that on a, on an individual basis. Just imagine every single time you needed to bury a, a bit of old Bible or a bit of old prayer book that had got worn out, your your garden would very quickly be pockmarked with uh, with little burial sites. Uh, instead, typically what uh, what would be done is that the documents would all be gathered in uh, in a cupboard or or stored away. Um, the Hebrew word is mugunaz, mugunaz, and you can hear there the uh, the root of the word geniza, and so. Once your geniza, your your cupboard, was uh, suitably full of these worn-out documents, you would then give them a uh, uh, the, the proper um, ceremony um, and bury them all at once. And it just so happened that uh, in a synagogue in Fustart, which is old Cairo, so so uh, near present-day Cairo, but not quite identical, uh, there was a, a synagogue, the Ben Ezra Synagogue, which happened to have a very very large geniza. Uh, which wasn't emptied properly for the best part of a thousand years. And so over the course of that thousand-year period, um, hundreds of thousands of documents written in Hebrew or uh, Arabic or Judeo-Arabic to do with all kinds of, uh, of different topics uh, slowly stored up like an archaeological dig and uh, and. When that was uncovered at the end of the 1800s, uh, scholars realised that we've got this absolutely unparalleled source now to learn about uh, about Jewish history um, through these documents, which have just literally lain there for the best part of a millennium. And uh, what what exactly um, is your relation to this amazing collection? Well, I approach the the Geniza as uh, as primarily a Bible scholar, a scholar of the Old Testament, and the Geniza gives us a, a very very rich treasure trove of of biblical manuscripts. So the exact numbers are very very difficult to pin down, but uh, let's say that the Geniza as a whole contains somewhere between. Uh, 300 to 500,000 documents. Um, about 25,000 of those, uh, maybe more, um, are fragments of Bible, which, uh, which for the Jewish community would be the equivalent of, uh, of our Old Testament documents. And so I uh, 
I study those. Uh, 25,000 fragments uh, gives an awful lot of work to be done. Um, but, uh, but that's the particular field uh, of my research. And Dr. Kim is very well placed to be doing this. Uh, just to give you a little uh, CV, he studied Hebrew and the Old Testament uh, here at Cambridge at University and in his PhD uh, looked at a very important medieval Jewish Bible commentary on the book of Isaiah. And since then, he has worked on Hebrew and Aramaic Bible manuscripts uh, spanning centuries uh, from late antiquity all the way to the Middle Ages. And uh, today he's going to take you a little bit deeper into where your Old Testament text comes from. So over to you, Dr. Kim. Okay, great. Well, please feel free to interrupt me at any point and, uh, you know, if I'm going off topic. Um, uh, but let me start with uh, with what I presume for for most of us is a, is an everyday experience. You open up your Bible. Um, so let's say you're using the New Jerusalem Bible uh, or or the uh, NRSV or whatever version it is you're using. Uh, it raises the question. You know, say you're reading the Book of Isaiah, a very excellent thing to be doing of a morning. Uh, where on earth uh, d- does that text come from? How does it come from uh, all the way back? Uh, Isaiah was written say, around about 700 uh, BC, how on earth uh, do we get that text today? And how is it? how do we get it in our translations? Uh, and that's a very, very big story. And the Geniza uh, fits into that story in really a very remarkable way. Um, now, it's particularly uh, serendipitous, actually, that we're talking about it this week, uh, because this week is the 80th, uh, on, on, uh, on the 30th, this Saturday, it's the 80th anniversary of a very important um, papal encyclical, um, the Divino Aflante Spiritu. And I'd actually like to start just by reading uh, the opening paragraph of, uh, of that encyclical by uh, it's Pius XII, who wrote the, the following words. Inspired by the divine spirit, the sacred writers composed those books which God, in his paternal charity towards the human race, deigned to bestow on them in order to teach to reprove, to correct, to instruct in justice, that the man of God may be perfect, furnished to every good work. This heaven-sent treasure, Holy Church considers as the most precious source of doctrine on faith and morals. A fantastic um, opening to, uh, to, to the letter. Um, and the point of, uh, of uh, the, the, the key point of that document, um, written by Pius 80 years ago, this week was that after after thousands of years relying on the Vulgate translation of the uh, of the of the Bible, uh, so I'm, I'm laughing now because uh, the Vulgate was translated by Saint Jerome, and Helena had me on in a very unexpected uh, little manoeuvre just before this program talking, uh, and I was on the quiz about Saint Jerome. So uh, uh, Saint Jerome uh, was the only answer I could have given, and fortunately, it was the right one. So anyway, um, 80 years ago today, this, uh, this encyclical was published saying, uh, OK, instead now, instead of relying on the Vulgate, what we need to do at this stage in human history and the history of the church is to go back to the original languages, the original uh, languages in which the biblical texts were written. Um, and Pius Twelfth says that no matter how good a translation is, uh, it is less authoritative than the original documents in which the biblical texts were written. So for the Old Testament, 
those languages are uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and uh, and Greek for for parts of the Old Testament, and for the New Testament, um, Greek as uh, the as the the sole language. And so, eighty years ago, this week, um, the uh, the decision was made to to move the church towards a greater reliance on a greater study of a greater going into depth into these uh, these original language documents. So we're going to pick up uh, a little thread uh, of uh, of that by focusing on the Hebrew manuscripts which form the the Old Testament. So now back to uh, back to our daily quiet times you're reading through Isaiah and the question is what am I actually reading? What uh, where does this come from? And the answer in a sense is very simple. Uh, when you are reading Isaiah, you are reading pretty much a translation of one Hebrew manuscript. <coughs> Excuse me. One very important Hebrew manuscript called the Leningrad Codex. It's a somewhat unfortunate name, but uh, um, the manuscript is kept in a very, very significant collection of Hebrew manuscripts in St. Petersburg. We can't call it the St. Petersburg Codex because there's already a manuscript called the St. Petersburg Codex. So we have to call it the Leningrad Codex. Doubly unfortunate. Anyway, why is the Leningrad Codex important? What is the Leningrad Codex? Well, the Leningrad Codex is a manuscript of the Hebrew Bible. So the five books of the Pentateuch, the historical books, books Joshua, three to two kings, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets, and the writings, so Psalms, Proverbs, Job, uh, the scrolls, Chronicles. So that's the manuscript. Why is it important? It's important because it's the earliest complete Hebrew Bible manuscript. So I'll say that again. It's the earliest complete Hebrew Bible manuscript. And it's from the year... 1008 AD. So when we're reading our book of Isaiah in our quiet time, we're reading a translation of this thousand-year-old manuscript. So instantly we jump back a thousand years uh, to the Middle Ages, to this manuscript, the Leningrad Codex. And actually, and we'll talk about this a lot more later, the Leningrad Codex fits into the Geniza story very, very closely, um, hand in glove, amazing, um, amazing set of connections between the two. But for now, let's uh, let's keep thinking about uh, about this manuscript. Why is it significant as the earliest complete? Well, we've got all sorts of manuscripts that are earlier um, than the Leningrad Codex, loads and loads and loads of them. Um, and we've got lots of Hebrew manuscripts that are earlier than the Leningrad Codex. So, the, uh, in, in a sense, the only thing that makes the Leningrad Codex so significant is that it is the earliest complete one, the, only, the earliest one to have the, uh, the law, the prophets and the writings all together and all complete without any text missing um, or damaged or illegible. We can read the whole thing. So that's what makes it so significant. Now, here's where the story gets uh, uh, really quite remarkable. The Encyclical that I was uh, that I referred to earlier, the Divino Atlante Spiritu, was uh, was signed in uh, 1943, so 80 years ago this week, 30th of September, um, on the feast of Saint Jerome, 80 years ago. 
Now, just three years after it was signed, after the decision was made to say, okay, let's get back to the original languages uh, in which the biblical texts were written, just three years later, in 1946, the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And the Dead Sea Scrolls opened an entirely new and unexpected and extraordinary window onto the history of the, the, uh, the Old Testament text. Uh, all sorts of other windows, um, but, uh, but the one we're particularly interested in at the moment is the, uh, is the history of the Old Testament text. And so the question is, okay, well, what's in these Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, for our purposes, there are well over 200 scrolls of, uh, of biblical material. And so now let's, uh, let's think about some dates. Those manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest come from the 3rd century BC, about 250 years um, BC, before the Lord Jesus first walked the earth. And the latest of those manuscripts come from around about 100 AD. So they span, span quite a wide range of time. But now think about this. Your translation of, the, uh, of, 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 Jer of uh, Isaiah that you're reading in your, in your morning quiet time is basically a translation of the Leningrad Codex from the year 1008 AD. So it jumps straight back a thousand years. What on earth happened to the biblical text between 1008 over the previous 1,000 years? How can we go back even further to, say, the time of the Lord Jesus, to the time before the Lord Jesus? What happened to the biblical text? Was it, uh, was it this Chinese whispers sort of scenario that is very often painted um, in, uh, in more sceptical circles? What happened to the text of the Bible over that thousand years? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls gave us a unique opportunity to compare, because suddenly we have got manuscripts of Isaiah, say, and, and all of the other books of the Bible, all of the other books of the Old Testament, I should say, from around about the time of the Lord Jesus. Now, they are very fragmentary and very incomplete. You know, uh, they've been sitting in a cave for 2,000 years, so it's uh, not surprising that they're in a, uh, in a fairly bad state of repair. But nonetheless, they give us uh, an opportunity to compare the Hebrew text of the Leningrad Codex with the Hebrew text from, of the Old Testament from the time of the Lord Jesus. And the most extraordinary result, I suppose, that, uh, that, that, that turns up when you do the comparison is that basically nothing had changed over the course of the first thousand years um, since the Lord Jesus, and so from the time of the Lord Jesus to the Middle Ages, basically nothing about the Hebrew text of the Old Testament changed. Now that is a phenomenal, phenomenal result. These texts, you must remember, um, are copied by hand uh, and sometimes by, from memory. So they are uh, recited and passed down orally as well. There are oral traditions as well as written traditions. Now, I don't know about you, but when I copy things, I make mistakes all the time. You know, I, I can scarcely copy out a shopping list without making a mistake. And so to think that, uh, that the scribes in charge of the copying of the biblical text 
could manage for a thousand years from the time of the Lord Jesus to the time of the Leningrad Codex in the year 1000, uh, 1008 AD, to copy the entire Old Testament text without without changing, almost without changing a letter, literally without changing a letter, actually, and we'll talk more about that in due course, is the most extraordinary thing to be true. How on earth? It, it seems almost miraculous, a miraculous level of, uh, of, of sort of preservation of accuracy. And in a nutshell, not that anything I've said so far has been particularly in a nutshell, but uh, in a nutshell, what I do uh, in my day-to-day -day work is to explore how the scribes went about copying the text uh, in such a way that they could uh, achieve this, uh, this remarkable level of accuracy. But anyway, just to round up our story, when you're reading your, 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 uh, in your quiet time, you're reading the book of Isaiah or whatever from the Old Testament, as I said, that's a translation from the Leningrad Codex. So instantly it jumps back a thousand years to the Hebrew of the Leningrad Codex. But then now that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can jump back another thousand years and see that the Hebrew text of the Leningrad Codex is virtually identical to at least one strand, at least one strand of the transmission of the Hebrew Bible from the time of the Lord Jesus. So if you remember when Jesus went into, uh, into the synagogue at the very beginning of his ministry, and, uh, and it's his turn to read, and he opens up the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the, of the Lord God is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What I'm saying is that the words that he was reading there, the words that he had on his scroll, are identical, more or less, to the words as they then occur a thousand years later in the Leningrad Codex, and that that manuscript is then translated directly from the Hebrew into English and makes its way into your Bible translation that you read in your quiet time. So there in a nutshell is, uh, is the history of, the, uh, of the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew of the Old Testament text over the last 2,000 years. Uh, and a little picture about uh, about how my work fits into it. So can I give you a chance to respond there? That's a lot of information. Fantastic introduction, uh, Kim. Thank you so much. Let's have a little bit of a music break. And uh, I found a, a song based on um, Isaiah, and it's from uh, chapter 40, Comfort, Comfort, Now, My People. Comfort, comfort now, my people from page CXV1. <laughs> oh, that looks like 116 to me. Okay, 
thanks be to God, we've got a scholar in here this morning. I think that's what you need whilst reading Roman numerals. It's Dr. Kim Phillips from Cambridge University Library. And he's talking about the Cairo Geniza and particularly fascinating for us because he is a biblical scholar and he's going to be telling us more about this Hebrew Bible, which dates back to the year 1000. And eight. So thank you, Dr. Kim, and over to you. Great, thank you. Um, so uh, in the uh, the first part of our discussion, we were talking about uh, where on earth um, does the Bible that uh, that we come from, the translations that we use, where do they come from? And I uh, I was trying to explain that they uh, the Old Testament that we read is a translation of this manuscript from 1008, which has the very unfortunate uh, name, the Leningrad Codex. Uh, and that manuscript from the year 1008 is itself a very, very faithful reproduction of the Old Testament text, uh, or one strand of the Old Testament text at least, um, from the time of the Lord Jesus itself. Now, how can I make that claim? Well, it's because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which uh, give us actual um, first-hand manuscripts from the time of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so we can literally sit down and compare the text uh, as we find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, to the text as we find it in the Leningrad Codex. And lo and behold, um, uh, the text is letter by letter uh, identical, at least, as I said, at least in one strand of the transmission. Um, in, in the time of the Lord Jesus, the, uh, uh, the, mm, the range of text was, uh, uh, was a, a much more complicated uh, than it is now. But that's, uh, that's another story. What we're talking about is... Uh, is this almost miraculous preservation? How on earth could the scribes have copied for a thousand years the Old Testament text, uh, Old Testament Hebrew text, with such astonishing accuracy? And I will give you um, a, a series of examples. Um, by I think that's probably the best way to, to go about it. So if you uh, read your Bible very, very carefully, then you will spot that there is uh, uh, the name Ra'u'el, in uh, in the Old Testament, and uh, if I remember correctly, that occurs eleven times, in fact. But there is also the name Deuel, and that occurs just four times. Now, if you know any Hebrew, then you know that the letter De and the letter R or R look virtually identical. The only difference is that the R has a, a slightly curvy corner, and the De has a, a sharp ninety-degree corner. So, if you think about uh, think about it, the chances of uh, of making a mistake when you're copying copying the word ro'u'el and du'u'el, uh, there's a there's a very high chance of making a mistake. Now, if I add in the fact that the name ro'u'el is much much more common than the name du'u'el, then I think it's obvious to see uh, what uh, what mistake is likely to happen. You get to a point in the biblical text where you should be copying the word du'u'el, but in your head you instantly think of ro'u'el because it's a much more common name, and you misread the de and you write a r' instead, and lo and behold you have introduced a mistake into the biblical text, a copying error. And that is precisely uh, the, uh, the, the, the sort of mistake that the, uh, the Jewish scribes um, who transmitted the Hebrew of the biblical text were so 
uh, keen, so assiduous to avoid making. And they came up with, uh, with this entire system of, uh, of notes with which they surrounded the whole biblical text to help them avoid making those sorts of mistakes. So if you Google the Leningrad Codex, then there's all sorts of pictures um, of it online, um, some of them in, in lovely colour. You will see when you open it up that the biblical text itself is written in three columns, or two if it's from the Psalms or Job or Proverbs, uh, but three columns for the rest of the biblical text. But then all around those three main columns of biblical text, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of tiny little notes in the margins, in the uh, margins between the columns, but also in the top margin across the top of the page and the bottom margin as well. And those are the notes which the Jewish scribes, uh, who became known as the Masoretes from around about the, uh, the 7th century onwards, they were, they were referred to as the Masoretes, uh, I mean, the transmitters or, or counters of uh, counters of letters or transmitters of tradition. It, uh, uh, it's probably a play on words. And those notes are are the tools that they developed to help uh, the copyists avoid making this mistake. So, if you opened up uh, the particular text at the place where the word Duel, the name Duel, occurs, uh, so that would be in the Book of Numbers. It occurs twice in chapter 7, if I remember correctly, um, and then uh, twice elsewhere in the book of Numbers as well, and that's it. If you open it up to, to that name, then you will see a little duh in the margin by, uh, by the name Duel. And you might think, oh, that duh in the margin reminds them to write a duh and not a ruh. Uh, but actually, that's, uh, that's not how it works. Um, the little duh uh, stands for the number four. And so what the scribes did was to count the number of occasions in the whole biblical text when they should be writing de for de-u-el, not r for r-u-el. And then every time they came across one of those, they would write the number four in the margin next to it. So let's see how that might, uh, how that might help them avoid make the, making the mistake. They get to Numbers chapter 7. They're busy writing away. They accidentally write Ru'el instead of Du'el. But then as they're copying, they notice in the margin there is this little D, meaning number four, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet. It's the fourth, the D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew uh, Aleph, Bet. And they think, oh, what's that for? And then they notice, oh, I've just written Ru'el, but Ru'el occurs lots more than four times in the biblical text. So this must be one of those places where it's D, Du'el. And so they scrub out their r that they've accidentally written and they write d and hey presto they have avoided making uh, that, that terrible mistake of writing ruel when they should have written duel so there is one example of uh, of how these jewish scribes over the course of really over the course of that entire first millennium since the time of the lord jesus and probably before actually i think they were probably already doing this um, before, uh, in fact, I'm almost certain they were doing it, and we can talk about why if, uh, if you're interested. Um, uh, that is, that's the sort of work that they would go about, so that by the time we get to the Leningrad Codex, which remember you can Google, see online, um, and it has the biblical text itself, has all these hundreds, thousands actually, of notes in the margins uh, to help them avoid making those sorts of error. 
Now, I've got lots of other examples of, uh, of how they go about that work, um, but perhaps, um, Elizabeth, I'd better give you a chance to, uh, to respond to what I've said there. I was just going to say, um, you said you could tell us later why they were doing that. Perhaps you can tell us now because it's absolutely fascinating. Why they're trying to preserve the text? Yeah, no, why they're, yeah, you said why they're writing, you know, the, the de and four times. Yes. You know. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So that's why they, they've got to come up with this, uh, with this, uh, I, I normally refer to these Masoretic notes as like scaffolding around the biblical text, um, which uh, it's like, like uh, the scaffolding that you sometimes see around um, uh, listed buildings, grade one listed buildings, you know, they, they've, they've got to find some way of preserving the value of, uh, of, of what's under the scaffolding. And that's what these notes do. Let me give you another example. Um, just to illustrate um, a little bit more how this works. In, if you read Genesis 4, um, a, a, a big list of names, uh, Genesis 5, sorry, I should have said 5, um, then you'll come across the name Mahuyael, uh, or, or I don't know how it's pronounced in English, Mahujael or something like that. It'll be written as in your translation. Now, this is extraordinary, actually. If you if you read the, the the Hebrew text, that name is written in two different ways. The first time that it occurs, um, it is written as Mahuyael. The second time, the name is Mahiyael. So Mahuyael the first time, Mahiyael the second time, and actually those two words are literally right next to each other, um, in the biblical text. So what on earth has happened? Is his name Mahuyael or is his name Mahiyael? Well, it looks as though uh, there has been some sort of scribal error. Um, because in Hebrew, the difference between Mahuyael and Mahiyael is literally the difference of how long you make one stroke of a particular letter. It all comes down to whether the stroke you write is short or slightly longer. Okay, So it's an easy mistake to make. Now, what seems to have happened, therefore, is that at some point way back, way, way before the time of the Lord Jesus, somebody made a mistake either in writing the letter too long or in writing it too short. And, and we you know, difficult to know which one was which. If it's Mahuyael, that's with the long writing, or Mahiyael, that's with the short. But, and here's the extraordinary thing, when the Jewish scribes are copying that text that they received from the time of the Lord Jesus and onwards, every time they get to Genesis 5 and they copy out those two words, they can see quite well that it's really odd to have this one person called Mahuyael and then immediately called Mahiyael. And so they must have known that there was probably some sort of mistake. Now just imagine the temptation that they faced to sort out the mistake, perhaps just to make the second time it occurs just that little bit longer and so suddenly you resolved this conflict and the person is called Mahuyael and then Mahuyael. He doesn't change his name um, halfway between one verse and the next. So they would have faced that temptation but for a thousand years they resisted that temptation even to make a change to the smallest letter, to the least stroke of a pen. Now if you were uh, a reader of the Gospels, then you'll recognise that phrase that I just said, the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen. Because uh, you'll know that uh, the Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, 
uh, in chapter 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, I think uh, that what the Lord Jesus is referring to there is the work of these scribes who already in his day were were paying this painstaking attention not to let any changes enter the biblical text. Already there was that mindset uh, which said we have to preserve every single detail. And so I think he's alluding to it when he says the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen. And it's that mindset which uh, w- which carried the biblical text through the first thousand years and from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Leningrad Codex without change. Amazing. That's wonderful. The way you've brought in Jesus and, and what another meaning to, to that text that we're all familiar with. And we're going to listen to another Old Testament song when Israel was in Egypt's land and it's an African-American spiritual Go down, Moses, when Israel was in Egypt's land. And we have Sarah on the phone with a question for Kim. Sarah, your your honour. Um, hi, Kim. Um, I, I kind of have two questions. Mm-hmm. So um, the first question, uh, I suppose, or part of the question is, um, how, does, how does all this information that you shared with us fit into the, um, the collections that you're studying at University Library in the Taylor Schechter Ganesa unit. Mm-hmm. And, and secondly, um, while you've been working there, what's been your most exciting discovery? Or if you can't pick one, one of your most exciting discoveries while you've been studying there? Mm, okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Sarah. Good, good questions. Um, so the first question first, uh, and it's a very good question. I've, I've given all of this story about uh, about the biblical text that we read uh, and its preservation. What on earth has it got to do with the Cairo Geniza? Well, the Leningrad Codex, to come back to, to that manuscript written in the year 1008, um, and remember it has the, uh, the honour of being the earliest complete Hebrew Bible, so the earliest um, Old Testament manuscript in Hebrew uh, containing the, the whole manuscript. We know who wrote that manuscript. It was written by a scribe called Samuel ben Jacob. And the reason that we know it was written by him is because uh, in the back of the book, uh, he writes his name at various uh, various different points on, uh, on uh, what are called carpet pages or colophons, notes, um, where he would say things like, I, Samuel ben Jacob, uh, wrote this out and then added the vowel points and added the, all the Masoretic notes, all of those notes in the margins that I was talking about. Um, and then he explains uh, who he was writing for uh, and whatnot. So we know um, him as a person. Now, it just so happens that uh, that we know that Samuel ben Jacob was living in Fustat, in Old Cairo. Uh, 
at precisely the time when the when when uh, when we have a lot of Geniza documents um, being stored away in the Geniza. So he's living literally in the same city as the uh, as the place where the Geniza was discovered, the the the, the cupboard in the Ben Ezra synagogue. Uh, he is literally doing his scribal work. You know, he might, he might, for all we know, he might have been working next door to the synagogue, could have been sitting outside in the streets by the Ben Ezra synagogue doing his scribal work. But at the very least, he was in the city. And so that meant that there was quite a high likelihood that in the Geniza, we would all, we'd be able to find other materials written by him. And lo and behold, we can. We can do precisely that. In fact, we've got this treasure trove, really, of, of um, manuscript evidence for example, we've got a letter that he wrote when he first arrived in Fustat. Uh, he first arrived penniless, um, probably from North Africa. He probably had roots um, in Iraq. There was a very significant Jewish community um, in Iraq, or Bavel, as they would have referred to it. Um, and then he probably migrated, or his family migrated, to North Africa. Uh, and from then, he probably moved over into Fustat. And we have the letter that he wrote to a, to a very... Um, significant uh, Jewish benefactor. Uh, that he, so he arrives in in uh, in Fustat and he says, oh, I've just arrived. I'm penniless. I don't even have a porta. I don't have any money whatsoever. Could you please help me out? And uh, and it seems as though this, uh, this benefactor did help him out, helped him to get on his feet in his scribal work. So that's the first uh, sort of bit of, uh, bit of material evidence, as it were, that we have of the life of Samuel ben Jacob, the life behind the scribe who wrote this uh, this most most significant Bible manuscript? So that's one way that the Geniza fits in. It helps to fill out the uh, the social world, as it were. We, we, we often don't think. I, I you know, wage that uh, um, that most listeners uh, don't really ever think when they when they open their Bible. Well, I wonder who wrote the manuscripts that are that that, that these uh, that these are translated from. But the amazing providence and blessing of the of the Geniza is that uh, is that we can get these little glimpses into into that world. But more generally, the the work that I've been referring to this this Masoretic work, the work of preserving the biblical text, coming up with this massive set of scaffolding, set, huge set of notes around the biblical text itself, that took place in the land of Israel and in Egypt and in, uh, and, and in Iraq. Um, those were the three major centres where all of this work was taking place. And lots and lots of those materials end up in the Ben Ezra synagogue. And the work itself, the, the, the high point of the Masoretic enterprise, as it were, uh, it, it sort of comes to, a, comes, comes to a head at around about halfway through the 10th century, so say about nine, 930 to 950. So the Geniza documents are right from the time, basically, when when all of this scribal activity is is coming to a coming to a high point. And so again, it's like sometimes I, I describe it. It's like we can when we open the Geniza, it's like we're going to the to the working desk of one of these scribes, and we can literally pick up the bits of paper that he would have been using to write these little notes on, to jot down these little scribbles saying, oh, uh, I've got a count, this word occurs this many times, this word occurs this many times, oh, when I copy this bit of biblical text, I need to make sure that I write this note to preserve this, you know, make sure that this error doesn't happen. And we have uh, have 
hundreds and hundreds of documents in the Geniza which are precisely that, as though they have come straight from the, from the desk of these scribes uh, as they go about their work. So that's the, uh, that's the bigger sort of way in which, uh, in which the Geniza fits into, uh, in, into the history of the Bibles that we read. Fantastic, thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Sarah. Uh, I think you had a second question, which was, um, what was the most significant discovery? Um, there's an awful lot of things that, uh, 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 that I could say, things that have excited me personally. <laughs> um, uh, I'll, give, I'll give just two. Um, one was from when, uh, really f- f- from soon after I started working for the Geniza, um, and I found uh, a Bible manuscript uh, just one leaf. So lots of most of the Geniza manuscripts are very, very fragmentary. So we don't get entire books preserved. We get a page here or a page there. Um, and I was looking at one particularly beautiful um, page of uh, of a Bible manuscript. And I began to think, I think that this might actually be written by the same scribe. I think this might be written by Samuel ben Jacob. Um, and so I started to look and by what I'd describe as basically a sort of detective exercise, looking for uh, tiny, tiny um, clues that, uh, that seem insignificant by themselves, but which build up a picture overall, um, I was able to demonstrate that, yes, in fact, this uh, bit of Bible was written by Samuel ben Jacob, um, the, the same scribe who wrote the Leningrad Codex. It's unsurprising. He, uh, he, he being a scribe, was his... Uh, was was his livelihood, and so presumably we would expect to find more manuscripts written by him, and uh, and so it wasn't a surprise that it was there, but it was nice, uh, very very nice, an extraordinary privilege to uh, to be able to uncover it. So that was one, um, and the other is uh, um, was in preparing actually preparing a talk not dissimilar to to this sort of talk, thinking about where we got the Bible from, and I sat down with the Leningrad Codex. And with one of the Dead Sea Scrolls um, from a place called Wadi Marabat, uh, this was from about uh, the year 70, roughly, or, or uh, so AD, so 70 years AD, roughly, something like that. And I literally sat down with the book of Jonah in Hebrew from this scroll from the year 100 and compared it with the Leningrad Codex and saw that letter by letter, literally letter by letter, the texts were identical, apart from, if I remember correctly, two places where there was a different spelling. Different same word, but just a different spelling of the same word. And that really, I, I knew in theory that that was the case, but when I actually sat down for myself and went through letter by letter and found that it really was identical, that then, I think, sparked uh, this enthusiasm to say, well, how on earth did they achieve such an extraordinary um, sort of fidelity to the text? Wonderful, thank you very much. And um, uh, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to hear that um, the Isaiah text that Jesus read uh, in the Gospels in the synagogue would have been exactly the same one as we have now. It was wonderful. Thank mm. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah, Thanks. for Bye. for calling oh, in. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 Now I have a question for Kim. Um, it, Kim, if you're if someone's listening and they're like me, kind of fascinated, but absolutely a complete beginner to uh, this whole area, is there some kind of um, book 
um, an entry point for uh, the idiot's guide to um, <laughs> to <laughs> Hebrew Bibles, or uh, where can we start? Oh wow! Uh, well, that that's a really good question, Elizabeth, and and I think um, I think the answer is no. Actually, um, I can point you to a number of articles. Um, and a number of websites that that might be good places to go. But uh, um, if you're thinking about Hebrew Bible manuscript stuff in particular, it starts to get pretty technical pretty quickly. But if you, um, gosh, this all sounds very self-promoting, but if you Google um, Text and Canon Institute, um, they are uh, uh, an organisation in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, who are particularly interested in these sorts of questions. Where did we get um, the biblical text from? Um, I wrote an article for them about the Masoretic text, so that would uh, that would be one place to start. Um, alternatively, uh, if you Google my name, Kim Phillips, uh, and um, Tyndale House, I wrote another article for them about the Leningrad Codex itself, actually. Um, so, in fact, if you Google Leningrad Codex, um, Tyndale House, then that will that will come up, and both of those articles will give you. Uh, in effect, what we have spoken about here today, just uh, on paper, so you can uh, read it through for yourself a little bit more slowly and uh, perhaps with a cup of coffee and a wet towel wrapped around your forehead to uh, make things better. Thank you. And so uh, it's obviously for you a, a lifetime's work. How, how did you get how did you get into this? Hmm. Well, I, uh, I came up to university as, uh, as a Christian and uh, I came up to study maths originally and got halfway through my degree in maths uh, and was reading the Bible more seriously at university than I had ever read it before and just started to be just blown away by it, really just, you know, the words of, uh, of, of Pope Pius that, that I started with. Um, this heaven-sent treasure Holy Church considers as the most precious store of doctrine on faith and morals. And that was really my experience of reading the biblical text. It really is this, this extraordinary, precious treasure. Um, and so I thought, I, ju I just need to get into this more. And so I swapped from studying maths to studying uh, Hebrew and studying Old Testament and went from there, really. I've certainly been very um, encouraged to learn how incredibly accurate the biblical texts are. And, uh, you know, as you say, there are, you know, opinions out there that, that put doubt on, on so much of what we find in the Bible. So it's really amazing that, you know, you as a biblical scholar have come in this morning to Radio Maria to tell us how incredibly accurate uh, it all is. And it gives us that faith that, you know, to go to the word of God and, to to really believe every single word and in the last few minutes is there anything else that you'd like to share wow uh well i think i could probably talk about this topic for for months and months without running dry um let me uh, let me finish I, uh, i'll give perhaps just one more uh, illustration of uh, of how this uh, all works out and perhaps i'll i'll tie it back to saint jerome um his feast day on the 30th of september um if you open up Genesis chapter 4 to the story of Cain and Abel, then uh, you come across this, uh, this very bizarre bit in the, in the Hebrew where it says, uh, and then Cain said to Abel, and then he rose up 
and killed him. So it, it doesn't really seem to make sense in the Hebrew. You can make sense of it just about, but it, uh, it doesn't read very naturally. Let's put it that way. Um, so let me find the actual words. So there we are. That, that, that's, that's the Hebrew I've just read out. Cain said to Abel, his brother, and then when they were in the field, Cain rose up and struck his brother Abel and killed him. So very odd uh, bit of text there. Doesn't really seem to make much sense. It's almost as though something has uh, has miss, been been missed out. So just this this sort of helps to round off the picture. What I just read was <laughs> you can join in by now was uh, from the Leningrad Codex, the year one thousand and eight. But that would have been copied with incredible fidelity all the way back to well before the time of the Lord Jesus. But at some point before uh, this attitude of incredible fidelity to the text came in, it looks as though a bit of text drops out. It looks as though there was just a mistake there. And, you know, mistakes happen. Um, humans are copying the biblical text and humans just make mistakes, like I said with my shopping list. Um, so is that a problem? Well, yes, by itself it would be a problem. Um, but the wonderful thing about the scriptural text is that we don't just have to rely on the Hebrew. As I've said, we, we can put an enormous degree of trust in, the, in, the, in the, the Hebrew text itself because it was copied with such fidelity. But that doesn't mean that no mistakes were made, particularly um, in the centuries before the Lord Jesus, where um, this degree of, uh, of attention to detail um, doesn't seem to have, have been quite the same. In this case, though, in this particular example, we can turn to, for example, the Greek translation of the book of Genesis, which was um, done roughly at around about 250, 300 BC. And when we turn to the Greek, we see and we turn to, to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8. I'm just finding it here. Rum, pum, 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 pum. So remember, the uh, the Hebrew said, um, Cain said to Abel, his brother, and then they were in the field and Cain rose up. And so, so what, what on earth did he say to his brother? Well, the Greek says, Ah, here we have what he said. Cain said to Abel, his brother, let's go out to the field. And then it carries on in the same way as the Hebrew does. Um, while they were out in the field, Cain rose up. So it looks, in this case, as though the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew text, which was done around about 300 years before Jesus, preserves that little bit of text which was accidentally dropped out in the Hebrew text. And so that process, that process is called textual criticism, where we can compare the Hebrew text, the original Hebrew text, against the Greek translation and against the Latin translation of the Vulgate, um, St. Jerome working on it in around about the year uh, 400, roughly 400 AD, um, and he's referring back to the Hebrew as well. We've got, in other words, this multiple group of witnesses who can all speak into the situation, who can all say this is what the text originally said. And so uh, when you, just to complete this picture now, when you read your your translation, most of the time it is just the Hebrew text translated because the text was done with such fidelity. But occasionally 
there are these little inputs from the Greek and from the Latin translations where they seem to help preserve a text where a, mis where a mistake was made in the Hebrew. Thank you. And one final question. Um, will, will there be an exhibition of the uh, Cairo Geniza? Is there, is there any way a layperson can, you know, pop by and have a look if someone is in Cambridge or... Yes, well, there are several answers to that, actually. Um, if you want to organise uh, a specific visit to the Cairo Geniza collection in Cambridge, you can do so. Um, again, if you just uh, Google Cairo Geniza Cambridge, then um, you'll come up um, with the website. Um, and you can contact Sarah Sykes, the administrator there, and she will um, help you through the stages in organising uh, for you to, to come and see some of the documents for yourselves. If you um, want to just see some of the documents, we did have an exhibition um, back a few years ago, uh, and I think that some of that might still be online on uh, on the e-exhibition site of Cambridge University Library. Um, so it was called, oh gosh, I think it was called Sacred Sacred Treasure, maybe that's what it's called. Um, so uh, so you can Google that and see if uh, see if that is is still up. Um, uh, apart from that, uh, I'm pretty certain that if you Google the Cairo Geniza collection, there'll be some links um, there that you can follow. All of the images, this amazing thing about the, the Geniza collection, all of the fragments have been digitised. There, um, there are images that are freely available online. Um, uh, so uh, if, you, if you follow those um, hints, then uh, then you should be able to find some. If there is something in particular that that you are looking for and you can't find it, then uh, then feel free to uh, get in contact with me personally. Thank you so much, Sacred Treasure. I love that because I was just feeling how you are like a an archaeologist, and you've come to share with us your amazing uh, career of daily treasure hunting, <laughs> and uh, it's been absolutely fascinating and inspiring so thank you so much thank for you. for coming in thank this you. morning it's been a pleasure This was a Radio Maria podcast. If you enjoyed it, do please click like and subscribe on your podcast provider or leave us a review. Every bit of feedback helps increase our visibility and allows us to reach more people with the message of Christ's saving truth. And if you don't already, you can listen to Radio Maria live either online or on DAB in selected regions of the UK. We'd love for you to call in live and be part of the conversation. See our website, radiomariaengland.uk, for more details and a full schedule of programmes. And do please consider making a donation so that we can keep making more programmes like this. We are completely dependent upon the generosity of our listeners.